Hello and welcome back to Subspace Radio. It's me, Kevin. And me, Rob. And we are here with a surprise episode of Star Trek. This is the first time in history, if I am not forgetting something, Rob, that the powers that be at Star Trek Incorporated have shocked us by dropping in the middle of the night a new episode of Star Trek with no fanfare. And even better, the next episode is coming out on schedule the following week. So in two weeks, we're getting three episodes of Star Trek, Rob. It is a bounty of riches. I don't deserve this much Star Trek is all I'm saying. <laughs> yes, you do, because you're not a toxic fan who likes to fill the internet with prejudice and hate. And, oh, it used to be better in the old days. You are the type of fan who deserves this. I hope you are not telegraphing some of the response to Strange New World Season 2, Episode 7, Those Old Scientists, because I have to say, this is mwah, so well done. I have no notes. I have nothing but praise for this crossover that shouldn't have worked, but worked so, so well. There is so much joy. There is nothing but joy in this entire episode from start to finish. It is perfection. It is absolute perfection and joy. I think this episode was dropped. People were saying it's connection to San Diego Comic-Con because they had a panel right. on the yeah, Sunday. They, or the... they aired it for the audience. And they were like, if we show it to some nerds, it's going to get out there. So we might as well put it on there. And that's a perfectly good reason to air it early. But they didn't just air it early. They aired it as a bonus episode. Yeah. So we had, yeah, like you said, three episodes in a week. We had Thursday, Sunday, Thursday. And we are doing our, our Star Trek crossover conga dance. Yes, we are. I didn't think any crossover episode tribute to the whole show could match Trials and Tribulations, but I had to hold my beer because in walk those old scientists to definitively say it is the definitive episode of showing what this show is all about and celebrating it. I had a fairly unique experience of watching this episode because I, like yourself, like many or most of the Star Trek fans listening to us right now, I had been aware that this was coming for a year since it was announced at Star Trek Day last year. So we knew this was coming. We had seen the teases. We had seen the photos. I was just like, please don't screw it up. That was my level of excitement was sitting down to find out if they screwed it up or not. <laughs> but I got to watch it with my partner, Jess, who swears by the lifestyle of not watching the trailers. So she was going in completely clean. She had no idea this was coming. And she herself is a big fan of Lower Decks. She loves comedy. So comedy Star Trek is the perfect Star Trek for her. So when it went from the previously on into a shot of the Cerritos and Brad Boimler's log entry, she lit up. Her eyes opened and she looked at me like, did you know this was coming? And I nodded back. Yes, I knew this was coming. Just to let people know how much Jess follows that to the letter. Jess does not follow me on social media because of how much I share trailers and stuff like that. Years ago, I shared a Doctor Who trailer and she literally put the comment, I can't follow you anymore. And so I do not keep in contact with your loved one because she said, I can't follow Rob on social media. He compromises my philosophy. That's right. Yes. 
I will continue to be a dead drop service between you. If you have any messages for Jess after the recording, you let me know. I'll, I'll pass them along. The other person I got to watch this episode with was my mother. Beautiful. Who does not care for Lower Decks. Ah. Lower Decks is a bridge too far. She finds it noisy. She finds it <laughs> obnoxious. Look, she's not wrong. She is not wrong. So she watched the first episode, said, I gave it a chance. It's not for me. So when this episode began, she immediately kind of went, oh, and she went and got her phone. And we said, mom, come back, come back. This is Strange New Worlds. Trust me, you're going to want to stick around. And she had a great time. And Good. that is one of the many magic tricks this episode did is you could be a fan of either one of these shows and love this not knowing anything about the other show. I will just say this. To have Spock use the word, it's exhausting. It was in relation to hanging out with Mariner and Boinler is friggin' exhausting. I have so much more respect <laughs> for Mariner's mum now for putting up with that crap day in, day out on the Cerritos. Yeah. Just amazing that these characters, now embodied by the voice actors that mm. were only hired for their vocal talents, the fact that they kept up the heightened characterization of those characters even though their bodies were not capable of things that could not that could only be done in animation now. Nevertheless, the energy was there. I never stopped believing that they were Brad Boimler and Beckett Mariner. Look, you say that, but he did the Boimler pace walk as he ran away from Una. He did the Boimler run and he also did the Boimler power walk when he's walking yes, away. Yes, he from, did. And they're going, <laughs> Jack Quaid. And Jack yeah. Quaid can do no wrong. He is an incredible yes. voiceover actor, incredible straight actor as well. And his physical comedy timing, is there, is there anything that man can't do? Just the, yeah, when Una showed up and he just yelped and power walked, <laughs> probably was the biggest laugh for me in the episode. There's just, oh, I can't even define one. Just from yeah. opening with the animation style. And there's been so many reviews going, oh, they uh -huh. open boldly on animation. I'm going, of course they're going to open in animation. So the animation was great. The opening titles rendered. Oh, so beautiful. Yeah. Rendered to look so animated. Beautiful. Animated, but not simplified. Like it is, to me, it is just as beautiful as the Strange New World titles normally are, but in a new way. The, um, nacelle. the space bug <laughs> hanging onto the nacelle was a laugh. And then as it flew over the fire planet and the space bug caught fire on the nacelle, <laughs> that made me laugh again. And then as the end of the opening credits, as the Enterprise flies off in the horizon, the shape of the space koala makes its yes. appearance. Because of course Indeed. it does. I both love and hate that joke. That space koala <laughs> is so stupid. I want to hate it, but every time they go back to that, it gets slightly funnier. Look, and it was a great representation and it was done as well in Trials and Tribulations. And of course it was directed by Jonathan Frakes as if there was anybody else who could direct this episode. What Trials and Tribulations did really well, and this does really well in many ways, it's not a competition of better or worse, but that case of people within the Star Trek universe are fans of the previous generations because there's so much of a gap. We have Cisco nerding out about James T. Kirk, but and in this we have Boinler just adoring, talking about his nerdy obsession with Pike and Spock and all that stuff. Of course, Mariner is obsessed with Uhura. And then we get to, the, they're talking so cool on the Enterprise going, oh, these guys, about them. 
but they start nerding out about Archer and the Enterprise crew. We sound just like them. <laughs> Enterprise has been, in many ways, the black sheep of the franchise. And we let's let's not mention the war. Let's not mention the Enterprise crew. But to have name shout outs for the crew and a plot device wholly focused on a part of the original Enterprise a ship was a wonderful move and a wonderful tribute to the whole show. So it's not only ties into next gen and the original series and this we go all the way back as well and that was yet another example of something they are doing so well even better this season in strange new worlds is that they seeded that previously like you pointed out the other week that the enterprise nx01 was up on mm -hmm. the wall for us to see to remind us of it two episodes before they would actually reference it and use it in the story and I feel like they keep doing that is they figure out what they're going to do later in the season. And then they jump back a couple of episodes and say, what can we plant there as a seed to remind us of that so that our audience is queued up to recognize it and be extra delighted by it because they were reminded that thing existed two weeks ago. And it pulled a beautiful masterclass in being a joyous celebration funny, ridiculous nature, as you said, it was far better than it deserved to be. But then it pulls out some, just pulls the rug out from under you with Pike having absolute exasperated frustration with them. I'm going to drop you off at the space, at space station 12 and they'll deal with you. And then it just slips into this home truth about him and his dad and his upcoming birthday. And it just, and to have the great work of Tawny and Jake being able to shift from ridiculousness and have a gag in where she mimes the chair that <laughs> Pike's going to be in <laughs> to just yeah. taking on this information. So Jake, oh, you know about the, and the, yeah. <laughs> I counted three of those gut punch scenes in this episode. One was, one was that question from Boimler saying, don't you think there are people on this ship that would love one more day with you? Yeah. There was La'an and her oh, extra rule for time traveling yeah. of no attachments, no attachments from personal experience. Beautiful. And there was, of course, the scene with Chapel in the turbo lift. Oh, my God. I mean, we know it. Of course we know it. There's no happy ending of for Of course them. we know it. Of course no. we know it. But she doesn't but know it's, it. It's going to oh, be she... extra sad now. <laughs> it's sad even before it's sad. How can they have any kind of relationship now? He, how many times did Boimler rattle off the highlights reel of Spock's history <laughs> and there was no mention at all of a pretty young nurse on the Enterprise? Not even a mention of a gorgeously dressed, wonderful outfitted to Pring. Ah, this man's going alone. Oh. <laughs> he's my. going alone and he's going stone-faced. And he's going stone-faced. Yeah, I always... What I love about Nimoy's performance is he's, there's a logic to him, but it's never cool robotic. There's always, there's just something behind Nimoy, even like from, even from the classic series, when I watch back, I watch it back and I go, just the, what he can get out of holding back is, it just elevates him to one of the greatest actors who ever has done the show. And especially in the movies, which was my first contact, he was never robotic for me he was never unemotional his emotions were there they were just controlled so he did beautiful stuff in star trek two and four and even five and six you're just going 
no one can tell me that he is being robotic. But yeah, and Ethan Peck is doing a great job of that as well. Oh but yes, just the fact that when he did smile and the score <laughs> comes in with the creepy horror movie chord over it, it was it worked so well. Just how wrong it was seeing him smile. For me, I see it as it's all from Boiler's point of view. That is just this horrifying, yeah. shining type moment. But everyone works so well together. So you've got. Quaid obviously has a bit more time on set because Tawny doesn't come in until a bit later in the episode, but great bonds with, uh, with Ortega and Chapel for Boinler. Boinler with Spock was fantastic. I don't know if I'd call it bonds. They were teasing the hell out of him. <laughs> well, yeah, I love a good tease. Maybe that's something saying something about me. Maybe that causes a stronger bond. But him just going, crap, oh, crap. And his work with Peck was great. And Ethan Peck was great. And Peck is such a great comic actor as well. He goes, should that be exploding? No, seat cover. <laughs> seat cover. Yeah. We heard every version of Boimler's scream or yelp or shrill <laughs> exclamation in this episode. It and was so did, good. Did you like it? You've got to love the reference to Beverly Crusher as he's being sucked into the portal. Remember me? <laughs> <laughs> yep, so good. And little drop stuff in with the Orions as well, which didn't need to be done, but they're dropping stuff in for Tendi as well and seeing the Orions in live action for the first time in Strange Worlds, I believe. Because obviously they've been playing the Orions on lower decks as just big hulking masses of masculinity. Yeah, that's how you could tell they were nerdy scientist Orions because they weren't football players. That's, yeah, exactly. I was there going, he's not a big, he's not a jock. He's got to be a scientist deep down. And he seems begrudgingly yeah. doing the piratey thing. What a guest star role to be that Orion captain. Like you are such a minor part of mm. an episode where everyone's going to be talking about and paying attention to every other part of this episode. Yeah, he did so well with that character. The thing where he says, it's just so hard to talk to you with all your weapons pointed at us. It was, <laughs> uh, I, I just love the texture and the subtlety with, the, with which that character was played when it could have been a mustache twirling villain role like the episode would have worked just fine with a bigger less subtle performance but they brought the subtlety and i really appreciated that and i love the how stories grow and how facts shift from who's telling it so at the end when boyna yeah. goes back and says to tendy the orions did discover it and he goes yeah and my mum discovered it my grandma discovered yeah. it or what goes, yeah she was there she discovered the whole thing he goes well she was on the crew <laughs> But yeah, okay, no, that's good, that's okay, 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 that's right, that's, that's fine. Right. The tantalizing moment at the end when you hear the voice of Rutherford and Tendi going, should we come through as well? I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> someday, someday, Rob. Someday. I'm not sure the actor playing Rutherford could, because Quaid and, and Tony Newsom look so much like their characters, despite the fact that Boinler yeah. is stretched. Jack Quaid is yeah. a huge, tall beanpole of a man. Um, yeah, and he's... yeah, and I don't know if Boinler's that tall. It's probably with the Boinler animated hair, it matches. Yeah. But yeah. It's a no tantal... Wells could pull it off, uh, but I think you're right that Rutherford's actor looks the least like his on-screen persona. Yes, which is a shame. Oh, I forgot to mention just the image, and everyone's talked about this in reviews. Okay, the moment of Jack Quaid looking at Christopher Pike's saddle this scene is directed by Jonathan Frakes and Jack Quaid as Boindler hoisting his leg over the saddle and saying, Riker. <laughs> Riker. 
<laughs> yes, we are led to believe that was improvised and he did it just for the man in the room. <laughs> and then we finished the episode, of course, with which I was shocked when it happened. I was surprised, but a part of me going, of course they're doing this. How could they not end the moment with the Strange New Worlds cast being animated? Pike's hair wasn't as high as I thought it would be. No, that's the thing. That's the thing. His hair is more cartoonish in real life. <laughs> This is an episode that bears rewatching. There is just so much going on. It's uh, hard to catch it all on first viewing. I have already rewatched it two times. So the big challenge or mystery in this episode is how are we going to reactivate that portal? Hmm. They end up harvesting heronium from under the floor of engineering where there is a part of the original Enterprise NX-01. A beautiful idea and addition to Star Trek tradition that each ship would be made with a part from the previous one to hold the name. I love that idea. But it led us to thinking about other hard-to-activate alien artifacts in Star <laughs> Trek history. And that's what we're going to talk about here. I have something from the original series. Do you have anything before that? I do. I have an episode from Discovery Season 1. Excellent. Hit me up. I am focusing on Season 1, Episode 7, Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad, with the return episode of Harry Mudd in our Time Loop episode. Now, it isn't clearly defined whether it's alien or man-made, but there is the MacGuffin of this that keeps everything together, is the Time Crystals. Yeah, before they gave Pike a glimpse of his ill-fated future. We had time crystals at the command of Harry Mudd. Yes, we're well and truly in the middle of the Klingon War, and we have Lorca in charge of the Discovery, played by the great Jason Isaac. And two episodes previous, he had been thrown into a prison and had been introduced to Harry Mudd. That's where he also met Ash, who becomes his security officer. And this is the old trope, like Strange New Worlds has done multiple times, ticking off whether it be body swap episodes or time travel episodes or crossover episodes, Star Trek Discovery did the time loop episode. And for me, who is not a big fan of season one of Discovery at all, this was one that stood out for me that I really loved this episode when I saw it and it still holds up rewatching it last night. I went, yeah, I really enjoy this. The characters aren't annoying in this. Burnham is not as annoying as normal. Stamets really stands up, is incredible in this episode. Ash is quite delightful. Tilly is used sparingly. Lorca isn't as full-on nasty as he normally is. Saru's good. And the genius that is Rain Wilson is such a good Harry Mudd. So yes, basically the episode is they're stuck in a 30-minute time loop. Mudd is trying to find out the secrets of how to take over the ship and control the spore drive. So he can sell the discovery to the Klingons. So they have the power of spore drive and that would, the Klingons would win the war. However, he only has this 30 minute time crystal jump. So he redoes it all the time. He's the only one who knows these in a loop, but also Stamets does as well. And so he's desperately trying to connect with Burnham and give her all this information so that they can gradually develop their knowledge of the situation and become victorious in the end. So it's quite dark. There's a lot of moments where Mud is just killing crew members left, right, and center. There's a darkly comedic section where you see all the times that Mud has killed yeah. Lorca. The and death montage. The death montage, which is which is still quite funny. 
But then as in true Star Trek fashion, which I really love, it ends with no one being killed and it ends in quite a hilariously having mud declawed. So the time crystals are what we relate to and control this on a wrist device and they, their properties and powers are openly vague, but it creates that gimmick that we need to slip in and out of a 32 minute time loop or whatever it is. It's almost a video game of an episode, this, like that experience of I need the perfect run and I have (laughs) infinite lives. I'm going to start over as many times as it takes, but one of these days I will find the perfect don't touch the sides path through this gauntlet and have the perfect ending. It is, it very much replicates the feel of mastering a video game that I love about that. It's Lovers of Groundhog Day. That is such a successful and well-loved movie for a reason. The formula works. Yeah. The thing at the heart of this episode, the impossible thing that makes this go is that time crystal. And I remember at the time thinking, time crystal, that sounds like something that's going to be a problem. If that exists in this universe, what other things are possible? (laughs) It's like that is a game breaking weapon that really should not be allowed to exist, but will allow it to exist for the conceit of this one comedy episode. And we'll go back to pretending it never existed. But it does come back. It comes back and shows Pike his future. And the return of the time crystals in the Klingon monastery, I remember that really bothering me because it was like, oh, we're not going to forget the time crystals exist. (laughs) We're going to keep pretending that's something the Klingons have had all this time and they've just been too religious to use it as a weapon. That seems unbelievable to me. Yeah, it was very much a case of watching it again going, this could be something that we never see again. That's okay. Let's just put it out there. It's too much of the ramifications of it. Just like within the Harry Potter world of the time turner, you're there going, really? No, this could cause some really serious messed up stuff. Yes, my, my dread of going back to watch an episode of Discovery was tamed slightly because this is actually a very good Star Trek episode and all those other elements they tried to overdrive in Discovery are quite turned down. I remember that being the experience when I first watched this episode is that's more like it. Finally, an episode that stands alone and feels like an episode and feels like a complete story beginning, middle and end that is satisfying rather than leaving us dangling yet again until the next week. And it is that case of at the end, it's the entire crew of Discovery against Mud. It's not just Burnham doing all the work. It's Stamets, Burnham, Ash, Lorca, even Saru. The entire crew have sorted this out and they have yeah. won together. And I'm there going, that's to that's over. Star Trek. Yeah, that's Star Trek. And to quote Burnham at the end that made me want to punch myself in the face, that's Starfleet right there, Burnham. it does get a little bit over the top when you know tell me a secret that you've never told anyone and that secret is i've never loved anyone or no one's ever loved me or and you're there going oh play the (laughs) violin a bit more burnham but it's it's genuinely a great episode and it's for me it's the episode i the only episode i really loved about discovery and a little hint of georgiou as well in there as well which i always think they they took away Original Georgiou, played by the wonderful, now Oscar-winning Michelle Yeoh, too soon. I miss Lorca as well. Like, this was a glimpse yeah. of what Lorca could be as an admittedly hard-ass, but proactive, productive member of a Starfleet crew. Yeah. Bring back good Lorca. Good Lorca, who was killed in the Mirrorverse, or...? As far as we know, he's still out there. And with just one season of Discovery left, please bring back Jason Isaacs. 
I could understand why it would be like maybe a bridge too far, like straining credulity. But when has discovery been afraid to strain credulity? Exactly. And to prepare ourselves for season five, I am two episodes in to season four of Discovery. Oh, it's just getting good, isn't it, Rob? It's just getting good. <laughs> Kevin, now I could see what you're doing there. And you're a cheeky monkey. It's not all bad. Look, that's all I'll say about look, it. Discovery yeah, yeah. season four. <laughs> so tell us, where are you going for your alien artifact? This is the original series, season three, episode three, The Paradise Syndrome. Oh, Which fans will remember as the time... Captain Kirk lost his memory and joined an Indian tribe. Okay. <laughs> Go on. To their credit for the time, they called them American Indians, but they don't call them Native Americans. We were not that enlightened. Yeah, haven't yet, got to that point that yet. Point in the 60s. No, but a lot of, speaking of straining credulity, a lot of unbelievable things happen at the start of this episode. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy beam down to a planet that looks like a beautiful national park. They immediately remark on the pine trees, the smell of honeysuckle, and just how improbable it is that a planet here on the other side of the galaxy would evolve so precisely to match Earth. This is something that happens more than once in the original series, the conspicuously Earth-like planet. <laughs> but I think they, they go out of their way to remark on just how unlikely it is. It's like in MASH, how the hills and bushlands of Korea look remarkably like California. So they walk around the pine tree and immediately come face to face with this stone obelisk that they didn't know was there. This is coincidence number two, that they beam down to this surprisingly Earth-like planet. And surprisingly, of the entire planet, they happened to beam down next to this stone obelisk that they cannot explain. It is a high-tech device that the natives of the planet who are, we learn, American Indians to all appearances could not have built such a high-tech device. They look around, but they don't have long to spend here because the reason they're here is to avert the destruction of this planet by an asteroid. They have five minutes to look around and they've got to beam up and warp out in order to intercept the asteroid at the point where they can still divert it far enough to not smash the planet to smithereens. Mm. But in those five minutes, tragedy strikes. Kirk says, oh, before we leave, I want to get one more look at that obelisk. He walks out on his own, stands on the surface of the obelisk, and flips open his communicator, says Kirk to Enterprise, and the hatch beneath his feet opens. He goes tumbling down a hole. Hatch closes. Kirk like clambers up onto a surface that he's not looking at. It turns out to be full of buttons that he has pressed by accident and a ray of light hits him in the forehead. He collapses to the floor, end of cold open. As a result of this, it turns out Kirk has had his memory wiped. Ah. This is another case of amnesia that we could have talked about in our episode <laughs> about amnesia not too long ago. Spock and McCoy have lost their captain, but they don't have time to look for him. They get up on the ship and warp out. That half of the episode continues with, it's another case of Spock and McCoy having to lead the Enterprise mm -hmm. together without Kirk around. And they have a similar kind of debates about whether Spock knows what he's doing or not. Meanwhile, on the planet, for the months, the three months that they're away, this is like an interesting kind of timeline in a Star Trek episode. Episodes rarely lasted that much in in-universe time, but the asteroid needed to be deflected so far away that they had to warp away. And then 
as they are trying to divert the asteroid, they burn out the Enterprise's warp engines and they have to limp back on impulse power, which is why it takes them three months to get back. During that time, Kirk, who can't remember who he is or what he's doing on that planet, is discovered by the natives who, in true white savior style, embrace him as a god yep. and award him the hand in marriage of the high priestess of the tribe. The interesting element of this episode is just how happy Kirk is when relieved of the pressures of captaincy in a low-tech agrarian society. They highlight this at the start of the episode with McCoy talking about how this kind of planet could lead to what they used to call Tahiti syndrome, which is when you didn't want to come back from your holiday. Yeah. Because, uh, the bushes and the trees and the bodies of water captured your heart. But yeah, the alien artifact that we're meant to be talking about here is that obelisk. And ultimately, it is revealed that obelisk is a asteroid diverter. And when the Enterprise fails to divert that asteroid in time, it is up to Kirk in the form of Kirok, the god of this um, American Indian tribe. He is expected by the tribe to find his way into that obelisk in order to activate it and make the blue lightning come out, as they say to divert the asteroid. But of course, Kirk has no idea how to do that. And ultimately he is stoned by his own tribe along with his, very shockingly, his pregnant wife on the steps. They are both stoned and Spock and McCoy beam down just in the nick of time to save Kirk's life. But Kirk's wife-to-be dies along with the unborn baby at the end of this episode. What? <laughs> yeah, it is completely shocking. She, like, for no plot reason whatsoever, she reveals that she is pregnant with his child. The only thing that serves is to further deepen the tragedy when she is killed at the end. Like, you could, I don't think you could do that on no. uh, on TV these days and not deal with it more than they did. But uh, yeah, very tragic. Especially the episodic um, nature of the show. Like, they can't carry on with that within, wow, that is, yeah. The double whammy of not only am I your wife-to-be, we're pregnant as well. Oh, and now I'm going to die. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Deal with that for five minutes. So how do we get back inside the obelisk is the tricky thing. Spock is able to decipher. In the three months that they come back, Spock is able to decipher his recordings of the markings on the surface of the obelisk and is able to find out that they are musical notes. So as far as he knows, if there is a way into the obelisk, it probably has to do with music or a sequence of sounds or something like that. Once they uh, restore Kirk's memories with a mind meld, he tries to remember what he did in the moments before falling down inside the obelisk. And it was literally to flip open his communicator, have it go dit, 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 and then say Kirk to Enterprise. And that is the magical passcode or the magical sequence of sounds that opens the obelisk completely coincidentally. That is the third complete coincidence <laughs> in this very unbelievable episode of the original series. But I always remember that. I just, I love that idea that this alien artifact that is completely impenetrable to modern science, that it could be opened just by Captain Kirk flipping open his communicator and saying Kirk to Enterprise. This thing he does casually every other episode of this series it was delightful there that like the key was right in front of us all along mm. in that way there you go and then the next episode they never talk of any of that ever again wow no i think it's difficult as a star trek writer to come up with a hard to activate alien artifact 
where the mystery is satisfying. Like yes. that the way it ends up being able to be activated is hard enough that it you believe that they had a hard time figuring it out, but not so arbitrary as to be completely unsatisfying or unbelievable that they do eventually figure it out. So this week, the heronium, the substance that is like completely out of supply in this quadrant of the galaxy and is very difficult to synthesize, but just happens to have been a part of the hull of the original Enterprise NX-01. It's another example, I think, of them just deftly making it just hard enough to be satisfying. And you also don't want to have an artifact that's too powerful that it becomes a problem. Like with the time crystals in Discovery, they're going, what yeah. are the ramifications of this? Like within Deep Space Nine, one of the possible ones I was going to focus on with Deep Space Nine was all the orbs, all the prophets' orbs. You've got a orb yes. of, of prophecy and change. You've got an orb of time. You've got an orb of this and that, or the artifact that's broken by Cisco and the parates come out of that. It's that case of finding an artifact that has a problem, an issue that you need to solve and yep. then can be moved on as opposed to the larger ramifications, which could affect the whole franchise universe. It was always very unclear to me, those orbs, how you activate them. Like, <laughs> they are these extremely powerful devices, but their saving grace is apparently the way you activate them is you pray to them in a worthy enough way. You like, open a box. You open a box, Kevin. Do they work every time someone opens the box? Has anyone accidentally dropped a, an orb box and it's opened on the floor and they're like, oh, crap. Oh, now God, we've I've, got to fix time. I've ended up on the Enterprise. Oh, dear. <laughs> Those obelisks that diverted the asteroid in this episode of the original series, they do uh, do a bit of interesting world building where Spock says one of the other things he was able to decipher from the writing on it is that it was placed there by a super race known as the Preservers. And I remember in my early days as a Star Trek fan, even before Next Gen had come out, that this idea of the preservers, that there was this race that went about the galaxy seeding planets with apparently pine trees and Native Americans, and that they would leave a asteroid diverter in order to protect them, spreading humanoid life throughout the galaxy is a very rich idea. There is, a, there is an episode of The Next Generation that has like multiple races racing for the secret of this shared code that is in their genomes. And you need the genomes of all the different races to, to assemble the message. And it is ultimately a message from the preservers ah. saying, you all get along, you're actually related. But uh, yeah, it's a nice bit of world building, that, that alien artifact way back in season three of the original series. Well, there you go. It's nice to have those little, especially those almost omnipotent beings being referred to again, because like we've talked about in previous yeah. episodes, these big aliens are huge entities that we have no real comprehension of without our limited understanding of knowledge and language. They touched on just as an idea and a concept for an episode, but to have that, no, they are, there is a legacy there. It's nice to have that addressed. It's a nice little Easter egg for us long-term fans. Well, there you go. That was our bonus episode for our bonus episode of Star Trek. So much Star Trek coming, Rob. We have another one in just a couple of days. Yeah. And from the joy and hope and silliness, it seems like just from the title, this might be going into a bit more darker territory with the, the cloaks of war. Yeah. I'm, I'm tipping Romulan cloaking device, something, something. That's oh. all I, that's all I can gather. We shall see. We're, we're less than a week away from seeing a new episode. And then just around the corner is the musical episode as well. Well, bye for now, Rob. 
See you, Kev. <laughs>